This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by NRX, making it easier to buy and sell energy in competitive markets. So if you can't lose a customer, what incentive do you have to keep them? And so that's the great thing about competition is that all boats rise because the bar is raised by someone coming in selling a better product than you at a less price than you. They're willing to take less profit until it's sort of like, ooh, it's not feasible, which then drives more innovation. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 13 of the show rolls along today. Glad to have you guys on board. We've got a very special episode today. Part one of a three-part series with Nate Richards, CEO of NRX, where today we will help you understand competitive markets. And of course, very few in the business are as well-versed on all things competitive markets as Mr. Nate Richards. 20-plus year history in the business. And of course, he's been working with competitive markets, oil and gas, renewables, you name it. Uh, that's a lot of what NRX does, making it easier to buy and sell power on the competitive market. So we're going to talk a little bit about NRX, and of course, we'll save that for part three of the series. But part one, the genesis of competitive markets, as well as why they're necessary, plus a bevy of other topics that we're going to get into with Mr. Nate Richards. And again, you will learn a lot. I promise that. And of course, again, whether you're a neophyte to the industry, whether you're just trying to understand how this whole thing works, obviously, it's been a huge topic, what's going on. Everybody became well aware of what markets were about uh, when Yuri hit. And of course, we're going to touch on that with Mr. Nate Richards as well. And then of course, obviously with all the heat waves that has uh, essentially been baking the state and really the rest of the country, but we'll get into all that with Nate here in just a bit. But before we do all that, a couple housekeeping items that we need to take care of. Number one, be sure to follow the podcast over at thepowerconnect.net, over on Apple, on Spotify. If you listen to us on Apple, leave a five-star rating. It helps with the algorithm. Plus, well, you know, we think we do a pretty good job here. Also, too, hopefully you guys had a chance to check out the new feature on Monday, News You Can Use. Get you in and out in 10 minutes or less. We cover four or five, sometimes maybe six, stories from around the energy world. Get you in, out, get your day started. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed that. Got great feedback from that as well. If you want to be part of the news you can use, whether you've got a story, whether you got news, whatever it is, business related, company related, whatever it might be, energy, industry related, let us have it. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Fred Davis, The Power Connect. And of course, you can also email me as well, fred at thepowerconnect.net. That's fred at thepowerconnect.net. All right, let's get right down to today's episode. Understanding Competitive Markets, Part 1, Nate Richards, CEO of NRX. Again, we're going to get into the genesis of competitive markets, why they're necessary, and the advantages of competitive markets. Now, of course, I will ask him a little bit about what are the differences, obviously, between regulated and deregulated. He's going to go into that a little bit as well. And then, of course, got to ask him, you know, if, if deregulated is so great, why are regulated markets out there? And maybe are there advantages to regulated markets? Nate's going to cover that as well. And then, of course, when you had the winter storm, Yuri, when you've got what's going on right now with the extreme heat, not just here in Texas, but across the country, really across the world as well, how do the markets factor in and can they play a bigger role? Or are they playing too big of a role? So we're going to touch on all those things with Nate. And then, of course, we've got part two and three that's going to go down this week as well. We'll touch on that after this program is over. So without further ado, please welcome to the program CEO of NRX, Mr. Nate Richards. I grew up in uh, an area that's served by a monopoly. And so that's what I grew up knowing as our power company. Swepco in Northeast Texas, and we got a bill from Swepco every month, and really didn't think about it. You know, you move to a different house, 
you sign up and you still got Swepco and there's really not a lot of consumer behavior around energy in a uh, monopoly market. And I'm going to maybe starting with a little terminology, what's the best way to describe what's happening in our energy ecosystem? Number one is traditionally energy is served as a monopoly. And I think the thought, if you go back to why is it this way, if you go back to kind of how energy networks evolved, meaning how did infrastructure get built and under what belief, you know, a lot of the things that are monopolies remaining, at least in the U.S., are kind of vestiges from a bygone era. You know, the belief was that it's a basic human right to have access to energy. It's a basic human right to have access to a phone dial town. And so, you know, you look at telecom was regulated monopoly. One company running all uh, connectivity because look at mail, right? Is it economic to deliver to my sister and brother-in-law who live in Alaska? That one piece of mail, is that really worth 50 cents? No, it costs way more than 50 cents, but there'd be no mail in Alaska if we didn't sort of create a monopoly and then say, hey, this is a public good that shared access is, is critical and we want to price it where everyone can participate. And so a lot of the energy monopoly that we see still in a lot of markets today is, is a vestige from that bygone era. Now, what we've learned since then is that energy itself isn't one thing. It's generation, it's retailing, and in between of generation and retailing, you have poles and the wires. It's, you know, getting tree branches off of wires, reading meters, sending bills. And so if we could just say, what is generation? So generation is taking some kind of fuel supply, could be gas, could be sun, and yeah, wind, right? It's hard to think of wind and sun as fuel, but it's another form of energy, right? Uh, mechanical energy, solar energy. And so effectively converting that to electricity. Right. And so if it's natural gas, it's taking a chemical store of energy, a hydrocarbon and converting it to electricity. And so that's generation. And then we look at retailing. Well, that's the packaging of the end use consumers product. So I buy electrical service. I want to use between X and Y. I want it to show up as a certain voltage. And so different levels of service have been established over the years of how businesses and, and consumers use use energy. But what's changing is we don't just look at it as electricity anymore, as just this pure commodity, where a, a monopoly kind of just sets the price and we just sort of pay what it, the bill that shows up, like my days growing up in Swepco. Now consumers want to know where did this energy come from? What's in my bill? Is there a way to get a lower bill? Why is my bill so high? You know, they ask more consumerism type behavior type uh, questions because the way that we have evolved as a society to think about energy has changed. We've got dashboards now that tell you what your hourly consumption is. Exactly. Like who knew that growing up? Nobody cared how much energy their dishwasher used like at 2 p.m. But now we're plugging in phones. We've got, you know, these these passive devices that are sapping energy and taking little sips. And as a society, we're using more and more energy every year. And increasingly, that energy is being delivered in the form of electricity because it's easy to move around. It's not a physical thing like gas or oil. It's, uh, it's easy to move around. And so electrical energy is really kind of the vehicle of choice for moving energy around the country. Now, let's talk about what changed from the monopoly into competitive markets where we are uh, today in a lot of the country and what I believe is the right thing for the future of 
uh, I'll say the planet without being grandiose because I think without markets, who's bringing innovation? I think that's the number one reason. And number two, I think they're more efficient. But even if there were no efficiency, we could come back to that later and talk about price and, and savings and that sort of thing. But I believe that without a market to give a profit motive to an inventor, an innovator, why, what's going to bring that innovation into the future? So before the traditional utility typically owns the power plant, they own the poles and wires, and they're, they're sending you the bill. Maybe there's some variations where they're buying some power from somebody else who owns a power plant to kind of top up whatever uh, load that they need to have. But that's kind of the thing. The traditional monopoly utility owns all of that. And let's look at now in competitive markets, we, we still have that monopoly around the physical infrastructure. So the connectivity, when you think about what is the public good, now that's kind of an economist term, but what is the public good in energy? Well, it's really the access to the network, right? It's the access to that mail. It's the access to that dial tone, right? That we say is the basic human right. Now, who we buy long distance from, who we buy package shipping from, these are now products and services. Those are retail type of questions, right? And then, so that regulated monopoly still exists everywhere. And they own the, the power infrastructure, the thing that needs to be protected from terrorism, the thing that needs to be up after a, after a hurricane. That is the regulated monopoly utility still there. Now, what's different in competitive markets is that usually there's a two-layer competitive market that's created where generation sits kind of at the bottom, putting power into, they're sort of selling energy into a wholesale market. Then you have, I'm going to flip on the other end, you have people using energy the end use consumer, that could be a business, a residential consumer, a government, right? People consuming the energy. And so what's in between, those people are buying in a retail market. And what you have in between is our retailers, retail suppliers. And those people, uh, those are companies that buy in the wholesale market and sell in the retail market. There are some variations to this around the country. In some cases, there is only a wholesale market particularly in the Western United States, where there's less sort of population density, a wholesale market has emerged for generators to transact where they might be selling to a utility, a monopoly utility, or they might be selling to some other financial entity that wants to own that power at that location for whatever reason. And so you can have a wholesale without retail market. And then in most competitive markets, so in 14 states specifically, you have a retail market. And this is the one that most you know, people listening are going to be more familiar with. And that's where there's a competitive shopping experience around energy. So I can either get my uh, energy from the kind of historical monopoly. Sometimes that's called standard offer service or default service. If I'm going to do nothing else, that's who's going to serve up my energy to my home or my business. Or I can go and switch to a competitive retailer who might offer me different products. Now, typically with a, with a monopoly, free nights and weekends. Exactly. Smart AC. And look, I've been in Houston now for 10 years. That blew my mind when I first moved here. Yeah. It was like, wait a minute. From where? Uh, Kansas. Okay, there you go. Right? And so I was like, wait a minute. I can choose. You know, so they said, go to this website and you can pick 
based off, you know, a, a kilowatt hour, what have you. And then I said, well, what do you mean free nights and weekends? Like, so when folks see that, how did, how, you know, what's the incentive for this provider, for that retail provider when they're offering you a free night and weekend, which is a, which is a popular service, which back in the day, and you and I are both old enough to remember yeah. back when that was a popular thing sure. in the telecom industry, right? Yeah. Free nights and weekends. Sure. How does that work from a utility standpoint? Okay. <laughs> that's it. That's actually a very deep question. Uh, maybe seemingly simple on the surface, but like, how does that work? Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, these retailers sit between a wholesale market where there's a real-time price of energy, meaning every few minutes, if you think about the tick of the clock, so in the wholesale energy market, generally speaking, let's say the clock ticks every 15 minutes, okay? It ticks different increments in different markets, but let's just pick 15 minutes, okay? As our, as our clock increment. Every 15 minutes, a new retail price, a new, uh, new real-time price uh, is posted in the wholesale market, let's say, every for energy. Minutes. Every 15 minutes. Let's, for the sake of simplicity, and we don't, you know, everyone just hits the stop button on your podcast right now. They're like, whoa, they're going too deep. Uh, let's just say, let's just say, okay, something akin to that. So there's a clock, there's a huge clock ticking, and every 15 minutes, the prices are updated based on supply and demand. So it's an economic model that is designed to clear the market, which means all supply that's generated is consumed by someone, right? right? And the price arrives at what's called the market clearing price, which is, in, to an economist, now I studied computer science and economics at Rice, so to me this kind of technology and economics is close to my heart, but the market clearing price is the price at which all supply meets demand and is sold. So it clears the market, meaning every good that's produced is consumed, and it's efficient. There's no waste. And so we, won't, we don't need to get into like how the wholesale market actually works, but let's just say that that supply and demand equation, people are, who have energy are bidding to sell it. People who need energy are bidding to buy it. Just like the stock market, stocks move up and down. Now, they move much faster than every 15 minutes, right? But their, their clock ticks every tenth of a second, right? Every second maybe faster than a second, right? The stock price changes. So this is sort of like that. There are buyers and sellers that are transacting in real time and the price moves every 15 minutes. Okay, so that retailer is sitting between that market, the competitive wholesale market, and the retail market where the price moves every 12 months. Let's say you sign a 12 month contract that says, I'm gonna buy power at 12 cents. Okay, now they might look at you and say, gee, when do you use the most energy? Is it when your air conditioner is running or is it when it's not running? So when is it running? During the day, right? When the sun is out, in general, generally speaking, in, in Texas, right? Probably uh, also in Kansas, but let's say in Texas, where we are today. And let's say that's the biggest driver of when you consume your power. Like there are other things, like I plugged in my cell phone, I turned on my lights, sure, sure. I'm running the dishwasher, I'm oh, doing laundry. Most people leave their ACs on, on 68 degrees and go to work, let's be honest. They're not cranking it to 74, 78, 82, going to work, coming home to a hot house, hot apartment, and kicking it back down and waiting, sweating it out while the temperature drops, right? Most people aren't doing that. They want to come home to a comfortable house. They don't want to come home to all of their paintings rippled from the humidity because they're saving, you know, 18 cents while they were at work that day, right? So, okay, so now the, and now the supplier knows this, right? They know consumer behavior, and they know that, generally speaking, you use 80% of your power, not nights and weekends. And so for there is a price at which if they make enough profit on the 
non-night and weekend power, they can afford to give it back, give some back to you on the weekends. In addition, so that's just the consumption side. Let's look at the wholesale cost side. When do you think, now we know that wholesale prices are set every 15 minutes based on supply and demand. When is there the most demand? Yeah, during the day. So when are wholesale prices the highest? During the day. And guess what? Nights and weekends, power is basically free. I mean, let's say it's not free, but uh, there are times when it's negative. People will pay you to take power off the grid. Okay, because we have too much. So that so. Can you say real quick? Yeah. Pay you to take. In the wholesale, in the wholesale world. Yeah. So when you hear that, who's paying who? How do how do you explain this in simple terms? Again, think of it as supply and demand. So if there's no demand for energy, materially speaking, not zero, but I mean far less than the supply. And there's tons of let's say the wind's blowing really strong in West Texas. It's the middle of the night, no lights are on, it's a nice, cool evening, nobody's AC's running, like power prices are gonna be near zero because who's buying that power? Now, generally speaking, there's different types of generation. Let's put them into two buckets. Dispatchable, meaning I can say turn on, and that will turn on within some amount of time, a ramp, let's say. And I can say turn off, and it will ramp down over some period of time. So that's dispatchable. Non-dispatchable is like a nuclear power plant. You can't, it takes like a, yeah, it takes like a year to turn on, right? And a coal plant is not a year, but it could be weeks, could be days to be economically feasible, right? And they're losing money as they like, think about it, basically, it's basically like a fire that's turning a boiler that makes steam, that turns a turbine, that turns a generator. That's a coal plant. It's a little more than that. But how long does it take to boil water? You got to put on your stove and wait for it for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah, so imagine you're boiling a Walmart-sized tank of water, right? You need a lot of heat before you hit steam. And then you need the steam to build up pressure before you can turn those turbines, before you start to get electricity out the other end. And meanwhile, you're burning coal to get that water up, temperature up, okay? Now again, I'm oversimplifying, but that's the basic idea. If you wanna understand why, why does coal work the way it works, well, that's, if you've ever boiled water to make you know, oatmeal, you, you know, I, I imagine that happens a lot in Kansas. Uh, you know, you know, <laughs> malta meal, okay. Grits in the South, okay. So look, I mean, if you ever boil water on the stove, you know that it doesn't just instantly boil, it takes time. And so those thermal generators, right, that are heat-based, they have a ramp. Again, could be uh, hours, days, weeks, but there's a ramp to turn on. That's why natural gas is so good. Now, imagine, you, imagine we take the stove analogy. Now, imagine you've got coal in the stove. Now, coal burns hotter, but it takes a long time to get up to temperature. Like, you, you don't boil water on a coal stove. You kick on your gas, boom, instant flame. Well, you could argue it's 1,000 degrees instantly. I guess you could argue <laughs> it's the same thing as when you've got a charcoal grill versus... There you go. Gas grill, right? right? I love my natural gas grill. Five as minutes. Soon as I fire that bad boy, I'm, up, I'm ready to go. Exactly. 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 Whereas, um, whereas, yeah, with your charcoal, it's got to come up to temperature. It's got to kind of be. You got to keep the lid on. Uh, you may need to put in some extra chemical to get it going. Right. Right. If you're like use a fire starter. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it's that's a that's a good kind of just like arm's length analogy okay. you know it's it's obviously much more nuanced than that but the point is okay so you've got these different types of generation in the market 
Then you've got non-dispatchable. You don't tell the sun, hey, sun, shine. Hey, cloud, move, right? It shines when it shines. The cloud is there or it's not. And the solar farm kicks out whatever it can. Um, same thing, you don't tell the wind to blow. The wind blows or it doesn't blow. Now, you know, we're getting better and better at predicting these kind of things. But prediction is not dispatching. Yeah. Knowing that it is likely to blow, even getting pretty good at guessing, doesn't still tell you, okay, wind, blow. It's, it's right? going to, right? Hey, There's oh my gosh, that... we need power in Houston. Let's get the wind going in West Texas and start shipping it over to Houston. <laughs> so that's kind of... So, so as more renewables come into the market, they're not dispatchable. Price control, uh, sub balancing supply and demand. This is how they're getting into like the physics of frequency management. Let's set that for another podcast. Let's just talk about balancing supply and demand. Um, when you can dispatch a, on the supply side, you can say, hey, you generator, you're, you know, X amount of capacity, come up and run. I want you to run right now. And the generator comes on. Or they can look at the price and go, hey, man, if the prices are going up, as soon as they hit this, we're going to kick the switch and get generate and get selling into this market. Okay, the price signal tells them, incentivize them to come into the market, right? That's what we like about competitive markets is that price signals incentivize good behavior, generally speaking. The controls that we need are to create an equal playing field, right? And when we start to get overly controlling as a government or a regulator, you imbalance the playing field, you create kind of these negative side effects that sometimes get realized. I want to go back to where this is all about the reason behind your nights and weekends question, by the way, I can't believe we're probably 10 minutes in on this nights and weekends question. Ultimately, the simple answer is they can basically buy free power and ship you as much as you want. I mean, kick your AC to whatever on the weekend. It's basically free per unit, right? So long as we've got you under contract during the day. It's just a question of total cost to serve and total benefit. Now, here's another thing that's cool about nights and weekends. Does it incentivize change in consumer behavior? You go, hey, it's free on the weekends. When am I going to do laundry? Am I going to do it on Tuesday at 4 p.m. When I, right when I get home? My nights and weekends kick in at 7 or 8? No, you're going to wait till the night. Yeah. Run when am I going to wash the dishes, right? I'm going to say, hey, use my little smartphone. Say, hey, turn on washing at 8 p.m. when my power price goes free. I'm washing dishes for free. Okay. Now, what did you just do? Well, you could have consumed power when it's really expensive for your supplier to go buy it. But you just shifted your load to when it's really cheap for them to serve you. So they're winning too, right? The more you shift load, even better, even better. But real quick, so on the weekends, though, I mean, especially with as hot as it's been, though, and, and especially with the way that, you know, things yeah. have been going on here lately, right. I would imagine that, you know, prices on the weekends haven't been necessarily all that cheap here of late. Uh, you know, so, to, now, so if you take nights are an easy one, right? Everyone can understand. Everybody knows. Hey, yeah, nights. We're asleep, whatever. Yeah, the, the world's not out. Yeah. ACs are not running. They're running. Now you might even crack a window. Yeah, right. Okay. Weekends. It's not that the residential load isn't there. It's there, actually. Commercial it's loads It's not that different, less. but commercial load is way less. Gotcha. Gotcha. Generally speaking. Right. Generally speaking. Right. There are, you, of course, I could pick any exception are, to that. Yeah. yeah. Any You would say, oh, churches are even more. Okay, sure, there are exceptions to the general rule. But sort of as a net-net, if you look at the total market consumption, it's... It's significantly less on the weekends. On the weekends, materially speaking, because your big box stores are open all weekend or all week anyway. And so we're not talking about a swing of seventy percent here, right? You, you you don't need to move consumption that much to start to move price, 
right? Meaning if the demand is is 10% less, that's a big, big difference. Okay. That 20% would be massive, right? So, you know, uh, power doesn't run like, there's never a zero. So there's some like low, low watermark in yeah. the wholesale market of supply that is just 24 seven. Yeah. We call that like base load. It doesn't really go below that. And then there's a peak, which is the max amount. So you may have heard like recently that ERCOT hit a new peak. Yeah, like 77, six sure. or something like that. Some number, yeah. right? That's gets bigger and bigger every year, every summer. <laughs> right. It's because we've got more devices plugged in. You know, we've got seven screens in our house now. We don't have two. We got uh, multiple dishwashers. We got we've got water heaters that are electric now versus get, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why our con- our consumption of electricity goes up and up and up and up. I'll save my EV question yeah. for the for the end. Yeah, EVs, sure, right? More consume, more consumption, right? So all those things. Well, and part of the argument there too is is that you know, look, charge your EVs at night when demand's generally less anyway. Yeah, but well, but again, will that be a? But I'm I'm guessing that's going to factor into the market. So because it's now... responsible to do that. But do you really save? Now, maybe if you're on a nights and weekends plan, you might argue, "Hey, I'm not paying for this, you know, Monday at 4 p.m. I'm I'm getting it for free in a sense, okay? And I can probably use my app and say, "Hey, only charge at these times and so forth." Um, even better would be a real time notion of of price where the consumer could look and be like, oh my gosh, my price is blank. I'm gonna either use more or use less. So one of the challenges we have is this wholesale ticker doesn't come through to retail. In general, the vast majority of plans are one price. No matter when you use the power, no matter how much you use, you've got one kind of unit-based price. That's great from a simplicity perspective, but it's not great at changing behavior. Because, you know, if I'm grandma, I'm not trying to do my dishes at a different, I'll do them when I do them. You know, I don't think about, I don't have to think about when to run the laundry. I don't want to think about, do I turn on a fan or do I kick the AC down a notch? I just want to do, live my life and not really think about it. And so most consumers, and certainly residential consumers, prefer simplicity over maybe what's best for the, for the power grid. And so... What you see is more voluntarism driving those, that load shifting. Like, hey, power's bad. The grid needs your help. Conserve power. You know, don't run your pool pump. Yeah. Uh, you know, do the dishes at night. Do the laundry at night. You saw a lot of that. Those sort of call out for voluntary curtailment or shifting of load to when the grid is less stressed. And that's that's a sort of good public service. But you don't really gain as you know mom and pop consumer from that in the retail market. The wholesale market dynamics change when load moves. So why have these two markets? Let's go back to kind of competition. And why not just have one monopoly running all this stuff? Ultimately, the monopolies, the the model that's the monopoly utility model is a guaranteed return type of model. Typically, it's a guaranteed return on capital. Sometimes there are some sort of special stipulations on like what gets included. But let's say that generally there's an eight, eight or 10% guaranteed rate of return to the investors in a monopoly utility that says, hey, because you're building this grid, whether it's economic or not, to add that last mile of power lines out to Ma and Paul Clampett in the, in the boonies, right? They're never going to make profit on that last mile of, of infrastructure. But it's, we want you to go all the way give access to all consumers. And because of that, we're going to regulate you on what you can and can't do, but we'll also give you zero risk on that capital. 
In fact, we'll guarantee you a rate of return that's fair. Um, and all you have to do is take all of those expenses and sort of put them into big complex form and submit them to the PUC as a rate case. They review, they may object or discuss, or you know, that may get revised. Ultimately, something is gonna get approved that says you can recoup these, these expenses plus a reasonable rate of return for your investors um, and pass it to the ratepayer on the bill. And that's how the monopoly world gets financed. How does the competitive world get financed? They have to make a compelling value proposition, acquire customers, serve those customers well without losing them, and manage their business effectively so that they gain a profit. Meanwhile, differentiating from all the other participants in what ostensibly is a commodity business. So the great thing is that consumers have multiple choices on how to buy. There's no nights and weekends plan on a monopoly. Okay, I'm gonna, for the people in the industry, I'm gonna put a little footnote, a little asterisk on that. Okay, there are time of use rates in some, in some utilities. They're not so creatively packaged. Uh, there's, there is a wide variety of different plan types and configurations because of the competitive market. Now, are they all good? Of course not. Are there ripoffs? A hundred percent. But look, you know, grandma might get ripped off by a bad power plan. She also might buy a lemon car. Now we have a lemon law that's sort of, at least nominally, you know, someone who's knowingly passing off fraudulent type vehicles can't just sell them as if they're really great cars. Okay, so yes, consumer protection, but we don't say, okay, what we need to do is take all of the vehicles and sell them from one government sales outlet that is mandated so that we make sure that grandma doesn't pay too much for a vehicle. We don't, we don't do that. We believe in the competitive market, at least in this country, for as much as we possibly can because we believe that free markets ultimately are best for consumers, not just for price. It might be better for price. I believe it is. You have to define like price for what before you can get into have there been savings without question for innovation, without question for innovation. One of the big things we saw, uh, we see right now, there's a, there's a big lawsuit in Virginia because the utility there said initially uh, they didn't have any green offerings. And so uh, the legislature said, okay, well, if competitive suppliers wanna come in, the consumers want green, uh, green access to more sustainable options. We're gonna let a competitive market come in so that consumers that want that can buy it in the competitive market since the utility's not offering it and isn't prepared to offer it. Well, one day uh, the utility said, hey, we're now offering green and so it's we have sort of right of first refusal. You guys all have to get out. We get all these customers now because look, we, we risk this capital. We have guaranteed rate of return. These are our assets. Like you can't pick and choose. You know, their, their case is this is, you know, the reason we went and built this stuff is because you told us there would be a return. And so guess what? All those choices went away. And now there's legal. We'll see, you know, what shakes out in Virginia. There's, you know, a, a very public lawsuit going on about is that really the right thing to do for consumers in Virginia? They don't have any access to any other choice. They have what the utility offers them if and when they choose to offer them an option. And the only thing that changes that is the regulator. So sort of the government is the only stick that a consumer has to get choices. And utilities, they may move super, super slow. They're, very, they're, they're not a high risk entrepreneurial business, right? It's about keeping the lights on. That's not, no one, want, no one wants entrepreneurism and keeping the lights on, right? We want low risk guarantees. We want lights, we want our lights on. When the hurricane comes, we want everything back on as fast as possible. That's a great job for a monopoly. 
What's not a great job for Monopoly is product innovation, customer acquisition, customer service. There's no profit incentive. They make the same thing no matter what. And where else is she going to go? So if you can't lose a customer, what incentive do you have to keep them? And so that's the great thing about competition is that it, it, it rises. All, all, all boats rise because the bar is raised by someone coming in selling a better product than you at a less price than you. They're willing to take less profit until it's sort of like, ooh, it's not feasible, which then drives more innovation. So what do, it's a virtuous cycle with competitive markets versus the monopoly. Because there's what, 23 states that are deregulated or something? Law, some, it somewhere. depends on how you count I, gas in there, but let's say 14 on the power side okay. that are fully open. So what's the argument for regulated states? Um, in a lot of cases, low, low population density is highly correlated with where there are competitive markets, with a few exceptions. Florida is one. North Carolina is one. And those are exceptions because the local utility is extremely po powerful in the legislature. Um, and it's not been able to get passed. Um, we'll see, you know, how the environment continues to evolve. Uh, but even as recently as what last week or the week before, we saw DeSantis in Florida veto a bill that would have sort of disallowed competitive solar supply to come in to the Florida market. We'll see, you know, where that where that ends up landing, but it, at least it's a it's a door open to competition and innovation that doesn't have to go through the monopoly. One other note I, I like to make is just sort of like these term deregulation. A lot of consumers hear that and they go like, oh, I don't, man, I don't want to deregulate my lights. You know, again, think about like after the hurricane comes in, Houston is a very real thing. Um, I don't want to have to worry about whether my supplier is going to be in business about whether my lights come back on. They kind of join this idea of who's sending me this retail bill with who keeps the lights on. And they're really two different things. So the yeah. utility needs to still be there and be regulated and be expected to get those lights and those substations back on. And when lightning hits to go in and replace the transformer and right, all of those types of things. And that shouldn't be because they send you a bill, right? Or because it's profitable to replace that transformer. It should be because they have to replace the transformer because you have a right to electricity, okay? And so that's really great. Deregulation doesn't mean taking regulations away. What it means is really changing the regulation. It's kind of a misnomer. So we think of D as like removal of, yeah. right? Um, it's really about uh, having a regulation that enables competition. And so... It, it, it's actually a term that's kind of falling out of favor because it doesn't really capture what really is happening, which is enabling, opening, bringing consumer choice, opening a competitive market. It's not reducing regulation. In fact, it's more regulation. You still have the regulated monopoly. Now you have regulated suppliers. They have to meet certain requirements. They have to be licensed. They have to post a bond in many states. So. You know, there's still a ton of regulation because now you have a regulated retail market and a regulated wholesale market and a regulated monopoly. So it's not, there's no less regulation. Deregulation or, you know, to your point, you know, the, the, the regulation of competition really got scrutinized here in Texas after winter storm Uri. Absolutely. Right? And mm -hmm. ERCOT became a bad word. Deregulation became a bad word. What a shame. Suddenly it was... God forbid people have a choice, you know, because then it's, it's basically 
you know, and I got to be careful what I say here because we know what happened when Bob McNair said this. But when you let, you know, certain folks run things, then all of a sudden it seems like it's it, it's it's chaos in the streets. In your mind, what what happened? And, you know, from a deregulation standpoint, how does something like that get protected again? Because now people are saying, oh, here we go again uh-huh. with, you know, the, the threat of, of, of rolling blackouts that we've had to deal with this past sure. week. Thankfully, it hasn't happened, yep. right? And it's been regulated. And you had Fortunately, a you got the a wind blew. The wind blew, right? <laughs> Solar went, went, went ballistic, The only right? person that can dispatch the wind is, is the big man upstairs, Is right? the big man upstairs. <laughs> How, kind of juxtapose what went down yeah. in Hurricane, excuse me, what went down with Yuri and yeah. the fallout versus what we've been dealing with this week. And oh, by the way, yeah. MISO, what, SPP, they've all been taxed to the gills this week as well from a demand standpoint, sure. have they not? And they were in Uri as well. No one, uh, no one prints that story. And you look at where the money went, it's really the gas, the gas business. People who had gas positions, people who are long, real-time spot market gas supply made the billions. Because if you're a retailer, you have to deliver. You don't have an option to say, hey, I'm gonna just, it's too expensive, I'm going to not sell. I know I signed this contract to sell no matter what, but it's too expensive, I'm out. You, can't, you don't have that option. Okay, that's why you have to post credit, right, to the grid. So if you're a small supplier, you have to go rent somebody else's balance sheet so that you're credit worthy because somebody's got to pay for that power. So someone's guaranteeing your good credit on the grid to say, hey, send power to Nate's house, right? So that's kind of what's happening in the game. I'm oversimplifying, but okay. So what happened with Yuri is, wow. First of all, it doesn't matter. SPP, Swepco, right, my home, my home utility, in Longview, Texas, had the same problems, okay, which is, you know, frozen infrastructure creates lots and lots of physical challenges because of the laws of physics. Also, when gas doesn't ship into the market through its normal channels, you know, say coming from West Texas because we have valve problems, we have uh, gas lifting station problems, we have just various gas infrastructure problems, you have a, another major problem, which is the, the dispatchable power can't get dispatched because there's no fuel to consume. Yeah. In some cases, the regulars are saying, hey, uh, that gas needs to go into the gas, the, the residential gas lines, the gas distribution system, not to power gen because people's heat is running on gas, largely in, in Texas, right? We don't have as much electric heat here as we have gas heat. Right. And so they're saying, well, we want people to freeze or have their lights go off. So it creates this sort of like major chaos. And so now you have no gas coming in. And then you had, you know, lakes. We talked about the nuclear thing is like boiling water, right? So what do you do when, when you, what if you, what if you went to boil the water and it had an ice cube in it? It takes that much longer to boil, right? And what if it keeps freezing? You know, somebody else is, is dropping ice cubes in your pot of water every five minutes. That's sort of what's happening. Like their intake, in some cases, like froze. There's all, it's, the thing is, it's not even one thing. But what it is, is physical infrastructure. It doesn't matter the structure of the market. The main sort of difference would be how those costs get uplifted to consumers. Is it through a rate case where the utility, the monopoly goes to the, to the regulator and says, hey, we had all these costs. We can't be insolvent. You've got to call it a bailout or call it a fair dealing because we took this risk with the guarantee. Uh, but ultimately, the word uplift is, 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 a, is a sexy word for reimbursed, <laughs> right? Who's going to pay the bill, Right. So unless the, the consumers benefited, because actually the retail companies took the fall here. I, I happened to be with, uh, with NRG during the freeze. 
they actually took me on going into the freeze. Now, I'll be forever grateful to NRG for that because I was actually with Gritty before. And if you, if you know the story, so Gritty is wholesale power pricing at the residential level. Now, I loved Gritty. I saved a ton of money with Gritty because I used my smart thermostat and sort of I actually shifted my load, had price signals and knew how to kind of play the game. It was sort of fun for me, right? I mean, the net bottom line result in the bill, maybe not massively different. But the point is, NRG didn't send me a bill for thousands of dollars. They took me on at, I don't know, some 12, 14 cents. I mean, nothing, nothing. Okay. They lost money taking me as a customer. And because of the competitive market, I'm not going to ever get, they're not going to go back and be like, well, Nate, we went to the regulators and he says that your fair share was $85, right? We divided, it wasn't $85,000, but it was $85. And it would be every $85 for every consumer in the market. And so, you know, we think that that's, you know, that's fair and here's an invoice for it. No, they, they're not, not allowed to do that. The monopoly, uh, they uplift their charges through rate cases. And so the question is, now that it happened, the costs were, were realized, who, who pays? Who paid the bill? And ultimately, the competitive market, by and large, foot the bill. In some cases, some of those costs were socialized, but a, a small small percentage and it crushed it crushed some other retailers you know one one retailer famously was giving away a tesla for people you know in a, in a competition to see who could turn off the most amount of power because that's how much it cost them to ship power to to people's houses and there are several stories like that that happened during yuri so so the, the argument that it was any in any way shape or form related to the to the competitive marketplace is just complete baloney uh, and, and sadly, most of the journalists and politicians who spoke the loudest at that time, it was, I mean, just not remotely related to fact. For the sake of this conversation, I mean, you, you simplified it in 10 minutes, but you've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. Is it because of the complexity that's involved and it's easy just, and, and look, we could get into yeah. a whole other side debate about, you know, <laughs> headlines or what have you. Sure. But it was just easier to point to, and of course it didn't help when the governor said, well, renewables failed right and that's the whole reason and it was kind of like that's not it either by the way well, of course it wasn't right i mean it was it was just too simplistic but you know yeah. again when you peel the onion away to your point there were other factors that went i mean it was a it was a you know dare i say the perfect storm that's why they don't build wind generation in canada oh i got i got a clue for you it gets really cold in canada and the wind still happens to work so it's it's nothing to do like people passing around pictures of uh, wind turbines with ice on them that happen to be from like 20 years ago. It's the classic internet. It's, it's this sort of um, rumor mill type of uh, scenario where people like to latch on to sort of grandiose type statements, regardless of their basis in fact or not. And also, politicians are expected to get on the stump and speak like, okay, go, whether they're fully informed or not. And these people are not energy experts, and they probably wouldn't claim to be behind closed doors, but they got to get up and stand up and say, hey, you know, mom and pop voter, I'm going to go to work on this for you, and I'm not, we're not putting up with this, you know? So on one hand, I understand, like, the job of a politician is not, they don't have the luxury of being an expert on every, every area. I do wish that um, they weren't so quick to sort of lash out in the absence of complete vacuum of, of good data. And at that time, there was just no one really knew. Uh, m- multiple things failed. Did the wind blow? It didn't. It didn't. It, it was way off, way off the forecast. What was it, 75% off of forecast? Some insane number. They expected the wind to blow, and it didn't. Again, who tells the wind to blow? 
Okay, big man upstairs. He doesn't work for ERCOT. No, he so. doesn't. No, he doesn't. And, and <laughs> gas now, wasn't pumping. Uh, infrastructure was busted. Generators were offline. The scheduled generators who said, yeah, we're going to be up and running, that uh, were in the schedule, a, a bunch of them were off unexpectedly for just a variety of different, of different reasons. Winterization, reasonable winterization. And I want to be careful because I think some people are like, we need to protect against the storm for Yuri like all the time. Okay, do you want to... You know, I tell my kids about, I try to teach my kids about risk. And really markets are about risk, right? A retail market is, hey, the power price moves every 15 minutes. Grandma, do you want to take that risk? Let you go to do your dishes and the power is $1,000 a kilowatt hour at that hour? You don't want to roll the dice on that. So grandma says, no, I need to get rid of that risk. I don't even want to think about it. Great, that's why we have a retail market. Grandma doesn't want to be in the wholesale market rolling the dice with every laundry, you know, run, right? Okay. So really what retail allows consumers to do is, is sell their risk off to someone else. It's an insurance policy. Okay. okay? It's an insurance policy. I like it's, guys like you deal with it so I don't have to. Exactly. Hey, charge me a premium on what you think it's really going to cost. Just like uh, my, my homeowner's insurance, you know, I don't want to have to roll the dice if my house burns down, that I can afford, that it's like we're gonna, not going to do that because it's going to happen to a certain number of people. And if that's me, I need to not be up at night. So what I tell my kids is, hey, is there a chance you could get struck by lightning? And they say, well, yeah, I guess, not sure. Yeah, okay, are you like darting from the house to the car to like quickly minimize the risk exposure that you might have? You know, are you carrying around a lightning rod that's grounded at all times to sort of guarantee that you're not gonna get struck? No, no, you say, hey, that's a risk. It could happen. If it hits me, I say, hey, that's just your day. That was just your time to go, okay? Now, or do I go and try to mitigate this risk, which means my whole life I'm living in fear, I'm carrying around all this lightning apparatus, I'm darting to and from covered surfaces, right? I mean, you, no one wants to live like that, but it would lower the risk. So my point to my kids and also I think to the market is, look, some risks are worth mitigating and let's be responsible. But if you're concerned about risk, don't even get behind the wheel of a car, okay? Especially you're more likely to die in a plane crash than get struck by lightning. No one's going around, like, worried about getting on planes, you know? So, look, uh, I think winterization where, like, people were irresponsible, yes, let's get responsible. But I think there's a tendency for government to overcorrect and be like, we need to be ready for the 500-year flood you know, Mount Everest needs flood protection. You know, it's sort of like we need to be ready because what if the global flood came tomorrow? We need to be all fit on the tip of Mount Everest and be guaranteed to be dry. You know, so the government overcorrects. And so that's another great thing about markets is in the market, those retailers remember the pain of their hedging choices. They remember that price of natural gas. They remember that you know, some of them went ahead and hedged into the upward climbing market at a loss so that they didn't go out of business. Some of them said, well, maybe it'll come back down. If we hedge now, we're guaranteed a loss. If we wait, maybe it comes back down and we can make it back up. And guess what? It didn't come back down, not fast enough. And so we, we're short a few retailers today. So some of them sort of took a loss. Some of them hedged at an early part of the market and then sold back at the top of the market. <laughs> their previously hedged position uh, and made profit. So 
you know, the great thing is it lets the people who know how to manage risk manage the risk. Those traders know how to manage risk and they have memories. They remember what the mistakes they made and they have a profit motive to do a really good job at that. Grandma does not. Uh, and so that's the most great thing don't. about the retail let's, let's market. Let's call it what it is. Most people don't, right? I mean, that's why we, you know, like we leave it to guys like you and others okay. to do exactly that. So, because we're not designed for that, we just want our bill to be around the same sure. every yeah. month, affordable, right? right? Exactly. Predictable. So, why? What about the monopoly? Wouldn't they effectively manage that risk? Well, let's remember how monopolies make money: guaranteed rate of return on all on, on basically everything they spend. It's not everything, but it's let's let's say their cost of supply is not a risk to them. So, in that case, they're making a profit. The more they spend, the more they make. I don't want to blow that out of proportion either, but that is the facts. That is the mechanism yeah. of remuneration for the monopoly utility industry is a guaranteed rate of return on certain of their, of their expenses. Sometimes it's just capital, but whereas those traders have to like be good at trading to make a profit, they're in it to make money and taking risk. They will take on that risk and try to make a profit in exchange knowing there's a loser and a winner on each side of every trade. So my point is that it is markets that create the best outcome because now we've incentivized the people who are really good at managing risk to do a really great job at it. Uh, they have an incentive to do so. It's called making money. And so that's to me where the market solution is again, far superior to, to the monopoly. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Nate Richards. You can catch all of the Power Connect podcast episodes over at thepowerconnect.net, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, of course, on Google. Parts two and three are going to go down later this week as well, where we'll finish up with talking about, you know, are the markets working right now with the way the weather is? Uh, we'll take a look at the role of a broker. We will differentiate between commercial and residential loads and of course we'll get into a little bit about nate's background his company's been featured in the forbes 5000 list uh he's no stranger to be an entrepreneur what got him started in these markets and of course kind of what is ahead for both nate richards as well as nrx gotta thank everybody for tuning in this has been the power connect podcast connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time wake up Builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do.